I was thinking this week about the need for a a, a sense of, of the brevity of life. We just get so caught up in what's going on that it's difficult to remember that life can end just like that. We, we live here 70, 80 years, 90 at, almost at, at, at best, and, and then all eternity, and we're going to be in heaven or hell for all eternity. And so much emphasis is put on this life. <clears throat> Last night, <clears throat> I asked Allison, our lives are so busy, it was almost comical for me to say, where do you think we'll be in five years? I mean, I, I, it's like, who's got time to think about where we'll be in five years? But inevitably, when I think like that, my mind goes toward finances and security and, 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 and the health of the church. And I, I, I'm thinking about this life. And God calls us to think about another life world. He calls us to think eternally. Now, he designed this earth for us to live in it and inhabit it and to conquer it. And, and there's a lot about the, the, this life that is supposed to be natural. But the fall <laughs> messed everything up and, and, and our focus is to continually be toward a better day. If we know Jesus, that better day is a, is a definite reality. And it also impacts the way that we live right now. It impacts the decisions that we make, the priorities that we establish in our lives, the relationships that we enjoy or sometimes are a little bit difficult. That eternal thought process impacts the way that we live now. There are certain places that, where there's a sense of... Uh, 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 of um, gravity, a sense of urgency about a person's relationship with Christ. A hospital is that way. Now, as a pastor, it's not that I'm hard, especially when you're in there. I'm very concerned for you when, if and when I, I go or the elders come and visit you, one of the other pastors of our church come and visit you, our heart is very much toward you, but I go there a lot, so I, when I'm getting ready to say what I do about a courtroom, I understand that lawyers and, and judges and all of the servants of the court, you know, it begins to become routine, but there's something about a courtroom that makes me quite anxious. I'm always thinking about a person who is on trial, particularly if it's a criminal trial, <clears throat> In many ways, life is never going to be, be the same for the person who is on trial for allegedly having committed some crime, especially if that person is convicted and spends time in prison. As frustrating as it is to think about the number of people in our society because of the, of the, of the trial system walking away scot-free without any consequences, I've always been grateful that our system is structured to give a person who is accused of something every benefit of the doubt. And I'm certain if you're ever, God forbid, falsely accused of a crime, you'll be grateful for that system as well. As we continue to make our way through the book of Acts, we find Paul, the Apostle Paul, in yet another courtroom, facing yet another 
trial. In the course of two years, we've seen this in about three or four chapters, but in the course of two years, the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and the, uh, the head of the, 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 of the armed forces there, the commander of the armed forces, Claudius Lysias, said, I want to find out why people are so mad with him. He took him before the Sanhedrin for a trial. That didn't work out too well. They sent him to Caesarea, and Felix, the governor of the province there, brought him up for trial. And then over the course of two years, he and his wife constantly brought Paul in to talk with them about, you know, tell me about this religion. Then, of course, Felix was replaced by Festus, and Festus <clears throat> says, well, I need to try him. I need to hear about him. And he, and he <clears throat> listens to this argument, and he, 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 he says, I, I, I can't find anything wrong with him. But he's just coming in as governor of all of that area, Palestine, and, and he wants to curry favor with the Jews of the area. And so he says, Paul, are you willing to be tried in Jerusalem? Well, Paul knows that um, if he says yes to that, that he's either going to be executed or assassinated. And so he does what every Roman citizen had the right to do. He has the right to do. He appeals to Caesar. He says, no, I want the emperor himself to hear my case. Well, now that was a move that Festus most likely did not expect because now he's got to write a report to Caesar to tell why he's sending this man to Caesar. He has no idea what to say because he agrees with everybody. Paul's done nothing wrong. This is about religion, and and I can't see that he's done anything to offend the Roman Empire. Well, it just so happened that Herod Agrippa shows up about this time. Herod's coming in. Herod is sort of, he's sort of the ruler over a little section of this area and, and, and that Festus is um, overseas. And, and so Herod wants to make nice with Festus. And Festus says, you are just the man that I want to see because you're over Jerusalem. You're over the temple. Caesar has granted you the right to appoint the high priest. You will have some sense of what's going on here. And I I absolutely have none. They brought this guy before me, and he turned out not to be the monster at all that I expected him to be. But he's accused of, 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 of heresy. And I don't know anything about this religion, so would you please help me with this so I can have something to write to Caesar? And Herod Agrippa says, yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd, I'd love to do that. And so yet another trial date is set. Now I want to, and, 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 and by the time they say, let's do it, they say, okay, we're going to hear, hear from him tomorrow. I, I want to set the stage of what's happening. They're in Caesarea, the capital of this province of Palestine and beyond. And, and the governor is there, Festus, but also a ruler of a small section, but a very influential, important person, Herod Agrippa. And he is indeed one of the Herods you know, that we read about in Scripture. He's connected with all of those guys. Now, I want to set the stage for this courtroom by, by quoting a little bit of what John Stott says about this scene. He, he's going to paint a picture for us. Quote, Agrippa and his wife Bernice, now let me stop right there, his wife Bernice was also his sister, and it was as bad as it sounds. It was an incestuous relationship. So Herod, uh, excuse me, Agrippa and his wife 
Bernice came with great pomp. They would have had on their purple robes of royalty and the gold circlet of the crown on their brows. Doubtless Festus, to do honor to the occasion, had donned the scarlet robe which a governor wore on state occasions. Following them as they entered the audience room and the pageantry of the procession were both the high-ranking officers, the military tribunes who were members of the procurator staff, and the leading men of the city. When they had taken their seats at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. According to tradition, he was only a little fellow and unprepossessing in appearance, balding with beetle brows, hooked nose, and bandy legs, yet full of grace. Now, you had probably pictured Paul like Brad Pitt, hadn't you? I mean, you'd seen him, you know, as, as this really buff guy, and, and, and he's just always smooth, smooth with his speech. He's well-spoken. And let me see what, what he says again. Now, you, you think about all of this royalty on this one side, and here they bring in Paul. He was a little fellow and unprepossessing in appearance, balding with beetle brows, hooked nose, and bandy legs, yet full of grace, wearing neither crown nor gown, but only handcuffs and perhaps a plain prisoner's tunic. He nevertheless dominated the court with his quiet, Christ-like dignity. What a picture. Close quote. This was clearly a scene that had been carefully designed and constructed to intimidate the prisoner. Paul wasn't intimidated. Let's read the record that we have in Scripture. <clears throat> We're going to read uh, Acts 25, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, but our, our text is going to actually go on. We're not going to read chapter 26 uh, today, but we'll be referring to it several times in, in, in the rest of our, our, our time together. Combining two weeks into one, because we've, we've covered a lot of this material before. Certainly there's new stuff here, but this is the same type of thing that Paul has been going through over and over and over. So if you would please stand and we will read Acts 25 verses 13 to 27, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. <clears throat> As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. <clears throat> and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused meet the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. 
But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I have found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitely to write about, write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And then let me just read verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Father, as we examine your word today, we are seeing a place where the apostle Paul himself was examined and the gospel was examined. And Lord, though we hope that we never come to that day where we are in chains, it really didn't matter to Paul. He just didn't care. He just wanted to preach the gospel. Give us some of that heart that he had. And open our eyes this day, Lord, as we have already been confronted today with the brevity of life. And the gravity of this moment, this moment in time. Speak to our hearts and and help us to heed and to walk away from this place full of your word, full of the Holy Spirit. Committed to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. One of the real disadvantages of growing up in America, or I should say becoming a Christian in America, is that when we finally see who Jesus is and the incredible benefits of life that have been extended to us through Jesus, we mistakenly think that everybody else, once we tell them what has happened to us, is going to want to know this Jesus at the same level we did. Whether it's six whether we're 6 or 16 or 60 when we trust Christ. We think everybody else is going to see the beauty of this thing that we've missed all these years, but somehow when we tell them, that's going to be enough. I mean, a 6-year-old is saying, Granddaddy, do you know Jesus? You know, a 16-year-old is trying to spread the word in a 60-year-old, but we're always thinking that everybody else is going to see it just like we see it. Why do you think that we feel that way why do we think that way well for starters we're all about God and Jesus in our nation we're about being good citizens and if you've got a good voice you can make a country song about it and make a lot of money 
But we're not all about the Jesus of the cross. We're about the Jesus of God, America, capitalism. And I like all of those things. And oh my goodness, on this Memorial Day weekend, how grateful we are for those who have served and some who have made the ultimate sacrifice that we might have the freedoms that we have. And the beautiful benefits of living in this nation at this time. We're so grateful for that. But capitalism and freedom, as much as I like them both, don't represent the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the cross. When you take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you are always, in essence, on trial before the world. That's the way Jesus said it was going to be. They hated me, they're going to hate you. They don't like my message, they're not going to like your message. If you're given my message, they're not going to like you. You know why? Because the gospel divides people right down the middle and it has nothing to do with race or, 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 or religion or nationality. None of that. It's just either you believe in Jesus or you don't. Either you trust Jesus and his death on the cross is payment for your sins or you're trying to find some way to get to God on your own or to make it easy on yourself, you've just said, well, there is no God. So I don't have to worry about it. I just need to be the best human that I can be for this time. You know, what's funny, I, was, I started to say this, and I was just thinking how contradictory it is, so, so I stopped. But, but truly, people say, well, I just need to make the best of this time that I've been given. We have been given this time, right? By someone. We didn't will ourselves into existence. Somebody gave us this life. And Jesus divides humanity. And he's, he's one of the amazing things that I've read so far. I haven't spoken, just been so distracted. I, I haven't finished Rob Bell's book called Love Wins. But early in this book, he says, he's talking about how he, he, he was scared by this picture when he was a small child of his, at his grandmother's house about there's this picture of, of, of a great chasm in the earth and there's a cross across the, the uh, chasm and there's smoke rising up from the pit and over here is a celestial city and there are people walking across the cross and he said it scared him to death and then he goes on to say you know Jesus had very few violent images but this is one that if you offend a little child you have, should have it's better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea I'm thinking that's sick on two, 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 two points. Number one, he's, he's t- talking about his grandmother, how she ought to have a millstone. He said, now I'm not talking about my grandmother here, essentially. And he's saying, as they say today, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. That's a lot of saying. But, but then the other thing is, Jesus used very few violent images. Come on. Half of his images that he used were violent. And, and, and he used those violent images to prepare us to say, you do not want to miss salvation through me. Because if you do, there's horror awaiting you. A lot of people don't like that. Maybe you don't like it. Go home and read your Bible. Read the New Testament. Time and again, Jesus says it. 
It's this way or that. It, and it's all based on your relationship with me. And so consequently, when people know what we believe, we're immediately on trial. We're called to defend our belief. Now, now granted, we're not in a courtroom like Paul was, but we're on trial right along with side the gospel. So as we observe Paul's strategy in the courtroom on this day, there's a lot of strategy for us in, in sharing the gospel. It hasn't changed. Here's the strategy. First, we need to be sure that we give a clear presentation of the gospel. Paul was always ready, always ready to share the gospel. And he always, whenever he had the chance, gave a careful explanation. In, in, in chapter 25, verse 19, Festus was explaining Paul's crime to Agrippa. We read this a while ago. And he, and he said, look, he, I, I didn't find anything wrong with him. There was this, there was this religious matter, and, and it boiled down to this. There's this guy named Jesus who was dead, and now Paul says he's alive. And that made the Jews really, really mad. And that's what it seems to be about. Now, we certainly, in, in Paul's earlier trials, we certainly inferred that Paul was saying that Jesus is now alive. But it's obvious when, when people are reflecting back on these these conversations and these courtroom trials that much more was stated during that time than is recorded for us in Scripture. We've talked about that a lot in the book of Acts. Some of these sermons that take about this much time probably were 30, 45 minutes, who knows, hours possibly on end. And <clears throat> the same is true of what Paul says in Acts 26, verses 17 to 18 about when Jesus commissioned him to go to the Gentiles in order, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me or faith in, in Jesus. Paul said a mouthful here, but there was probably far more explanation given either during that time or before in his time with Festus. Paul was saying that those who don't know Jesus are blind in their sins and they need forgiveness. God opens eyes by his spirit using his word to transform us through repentance of sins and belief in Jesus. And when we do that, we move from a, from a Condition of darkness to a condition of light. And, and, and that's one of the reasons when we move to this light, why it just says, hey, hey, you, you're not going to believe this. There's light over here. I know you're in darkness, so let me tell you about this. And they're saying, what are you talking about? Have you lost your mind? Oh, we're going to hear some of that today. It took me a while to realize when I was 18 and got saved that not everybody thought this was a great thing. My grandmother, who had been so upset about my hippiedom, you know, and my long hair, I cut it. And they all said, well, I didn't mean cut it that short. And, and you know, and then I went up to Team Valley Ranch, and they said, you're up, my grandmother said, you're up there in the hiding place. You know, you're wasting your life up there. What are you doing up there? Well... 
when you're on trial, you want the very best defense possible for your beliefs and actions. You're not responsible for opening someone's eyes, someone's spiritual eyes. That's God's business. But you are responsible to share the gospel as clearly as you know how. Well, a second strategy for sharing the gospel is to make liberal use of your personal testimony of salvation through Jesus. My goodness, Paul certainly did. I mean, one of the reasons we're combining these two weeks into one, two weeks that it's in your, in your Tim Keller study in the home groups, we're combining them into one is because this is territory that's been covered. Every time Paul gets a chance, he's sharing his testimony with, with, with unbelievers. It's interesting when you read the, um, the, the, the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, he's, he's teaching theology. And he's going step by step. When he's witnessing to unbelievers, he's using his personal story. Every chance that he gets. The the telling of a personal story of how Jesus saved you, when supported by Scripture, can be a powerful, powerful witnessing tool. If you simply make biblical arguments, if you say, let me tell you what it means, and and that's sometimes the problem with, with canned presentations like, the four spiritual laws or the Romans road, they're very wonderful tools. But you can't just say, do you know who Jesus is? Well, then let me tell you this. You need to know this, this, and this. I mean, you've got to have some kind of relationship there. And a personal story is a great way to establish that. Uh, and the purpose, especially if, you, if, if your life has been dramatically changed, I used to share my testimony all the time. And, and boy, you know, one time somebody accused me of, of it being a bragamony, not a testimony, because I would talk about my life beforehand, which was, you know, filled with drugs and rebellion and, and, and stuff like that. And, and, and I, I mean, I was not consciously doing that, glorifying old sins. This particular individual thought so. But you know what? From a public speaking standpoint, way more, more people have been interested in Christ or come to Jesus to trust Him as their Savior after hearing that testimony than everything else that I've preached put together. I, I, I hardly ever do it anymore. It just seems like such another, another world. But when you talk about where, where you've come from and where, where you are now because you've been brought there by Jesus, it has a powerful impact on people's lives. Talk about... How God ran you down and saved you. Even if you were saved at a young age, you can talk about how you had to wrestle with the truth of all of this at a later stage in your life and, 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 and certainly confirm and affirm in your life what the Lord has done for you. If, if you're not able to share your testimony head on, there are lots of ways you can get to it through a side window or a back door. When someone talks about a difficult circumstance, that she's going through, you can talk about how the Lord helped you through a difficult time, how the church reached out to you, or how prayer made such a difference in your life. Offer to pray for your, for your friend or, or to tell him that you're praying for him every day. You may be surprised to find that your friend wants to hear more about your story. Well, a third strategy for 
sharing the gospel is to remember that these are eternal words and we have no idea about their ultimate impact on the hearer. Let me say that again. Remember that when you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing eternal words and you cannot know the ultimate impact of those words on the hearer. Don't, don't forget, like Sean said last week, it's not so much that it's the gospel that's on trial. The gospel is putting us on trial. It's judging us. And, and these words, no matter how lovingly said, if they are said truthfully and accurately, it's going to cut. And so there may be a, a reaction. So when Festus says, Paul, are you out of your mind? Paul was making his presentation. It's going along just great. And, and Festus just jumps in, I'm sure prompted by Satan, right at a very important point. And he says, Paul, have you lost your mind? You're so smart that you've gone crazy. And Agrippa says, really, Paul? You think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? We don't know the gospel's impact, the end result of what occurred on that day. When I was contemplating becoming a Christian, well, I wasn't contemplating becoming a Christian. Everybody around me was getting saved. It was a Jesus movement. It was heady days. And I was cussing them. And, and I was just stopped just this short of cursing God. I said, I will never, ever believe that way. That was like a week before. Uh, the Lord said, you're right. God's word and God's spirit were doing their work in my heart and mind. As the father drew me irresistibly toward the son, I, I, I didn't want to come. But he drew me. When you share with Christ with someone, you don't have any idea what they will eventually believe or not believe, regardless of their decision at the moment. I mean, God may cause your words to resonate loudly in their hearts, those circumstances, through circumstances, or through something that they read or, or hear, one week after you share, one year after you share, one decade after you share. You have no idea how God's going to use it. When you face opposition to the gospel, don't be discouraged if people think you're crazy. N none of us like to be thought of in that way. You know, our first response when somebody says, you're crazy, you won't say, yeah, you're crazy. You're crazy for thinking that I'm crazy. It, it makes no sense to the world that you would choose the spiritual over the material. That you would choose a, a life of sacrifice over the life of advancement and or pleasure. The life of public scorn over a life of public approval. Uh, let me just say this. Um, I, I, somewhere about midway through this American Idol season, I like to call it American Idolatry. It's really what it is almost. Uh, you know, finally, Allison convinced me to sit down and watch it with her. And there was some incredible talent on there this year. I don't know, I honestly don't know if I've ever seen anybody of any age represent our Lord and Savior better than Scotty McCreary did. I, I, it's, it's phenomenal. This is a 16 turned 17 year old kid who represented Christ 
so well. Now, if Simon had still been there, he would have had him voted off four weeks out. He was, you're crazy, you're gratuitous words that you're sharing about your religion. Stop that mess. But the Lord allowed this guy to shine light on Jesus. But oftentimes it's, we face scorn when we represent Christ. So many young men and women who have answered the call to serve as missionaries in dangerous places were thought to be throwing everything away. That's what my grandmother thought I was doing. My dad thought that for a while. He changed his heart and mind about that considerably. But just think about William Borden. You ever heard of William Borden? Borden of Yale, they call him. In 1913, as a 26-year-old graduate of Princeton and Yale, he left his palatial home near Chicago's Lakeshore Drive, given away over $500,000. Half a million bucks, not that big a deal in 2011. Hey, I'd love to have it, you know, and find out how big of a deal it is. But 1913, he gave away over a half a million dollars to go and serve the Lord witnessing to Muslims. Six months later, he died from cerebral meningitis amidst the flies in the heat of a Cairo hospital. And you know what people said everywhere? He was crazy. He was absolutely crazy. You know where those words were never uttered? In heaven. This life seems so important until your wife, your 51-year-old wife, dozes off, and that's it. Just like that. Borden was not crazy. Nor are you when you share the gospel. The last point of strategy is to recognize that the person God intends to reach is often not the person to whom you're witnessing. You get that? The person God is seeking to reach or he's running after, running down, is often not the person to whom you're witnessing. If two professors at a secular university are going to debate the existence of God, do you think that they're trying to convince their opponent? No. It's not happening. Who's the audience? The 1,200 people who have gathered to hear this debate. That's who they're after. And they're going to spend a lot more time crafting their arguments to convince the people who are out here rather than to convince their opponent that they need to change positions. Do you remember <clears throat> the setting when Paul came into the courtroom? Remember all of that? Not only were Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice in royal splendor, but the leading men of the city and, and, the, and the commanders of the Roman army were all gathered. And these people were influential not only in, <coughs> in the Palestine area, but all over the world, all over the Roman Empire. This was a pretty heavy scene in Caesarea at this courtroom. 
It was a social and political event. And Paul had the opportunity to present the gospel to all of these people of significant influence. Now to be sure, Paul spoke to Agrippa and he even confronted him at the end with a carefully worded question about, Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you do. And in, in, in the flow of Paul's argument, if Agrippa says yes, it means he also has to believe in Jesus. And Agrippa deflected the question by saying, do you really think, Paul, that you can convince me after such a short time to become a Christian? Paul said, I wish that all who hear me today would believe. And when you read that, you have to ask, now wait a minute, something just got flipped. Who's on trial here? Is it Paul? Or is it everybody listening? I mean, you can see Paul wasn't on the defensive. He was, in fact, very much on offense and quite optimistic in his presentation of the gospel. In the end, he revealed that the gospel is for all Jews and Gentiles alike. And who knows if anyone believed right then and there in that courtroom. But one thing we know for sure. A lot of seeds were planted on that day. And I would be stunned. I would be stunned if nobody eventually believed. And the Lord had brought that circumstance all together to get his work accomplished on that day. When you're sharing Christ with a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker, you never know who the person is that God is after. Doesn't matter whether they receive what you say. Maybe, maybe someone goes home and says, you're never going to believe what that kook said today about the Lord. I, I just, I'm, I'm so weary of it. And his or her spouse is saying, you know, maybe that's what I need. They're thinking, it may be stupid to you. It's not stupid to me. One thing is for sure. The word of God is not going to return void. It's going to always do its work. Therefore, we need to always be ready to share the gospel. Well, I'm going to close with a verse from 1 Peter 3 that many of you know well, and then I'm going to just review, just list the four things, the strategy for sharing the gospel, even when the response is less than favorable. 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Can you see Paul? You know, pompous, all this crowd over here. And then here comes Paul, you know, hook nose, beetle brows, wobbly kind of legs. And he dominates. Because it was Jesus dominating. It wasn't Paul. It was Jesus dominating. Our strategy for the gospel? Make certain that you give a clear, clear presentation of the gospel. Make liberal use of your testimony of salvation through Jesus. Remember that you are sharing eternal words and you, you cannot know the impact that they will have on the hearer. And recognize that the person God intends to reach may not be the person at all to whom you're witnessing. Let's pray.